welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Hey, everyone. So the current status of Reductio might be described as slowly crawling towards season one. We've applied for a massive grant through the National Endowment for Humanities. So we're hoping to get news in August that we've been funded for three years worth of production. Um, so that would be amazing, but it's, it's pretty uncertain. In the meantime, it's sort of just me in my free time. A little bit from Jordan Wallace Wolf, who's a philosophy PhD candidate at UCLA as well. So instead of leaving everyone high and dry for another year, though, I decided it might be best to produce some features that I wouldn't really want to call an episode per se. So the way I see it, in an episode is part of a season, and each episode will be highly edited and highly produced, sort of cinematic. So I want to maintain the distinction between the carefully and obsessively produced episodes and these perhaps shorter but certainly less produced episodes that I'll make every now and again and drop into the podcast feed. I'm open to suggestions, but for now I'll just call them monads. So I wanted to kick the first monad off by talking about what a monad is. It's a word coined by someone who has been called the last universal genius. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. He was born about 1650 and died about 15 years into the 18th century. So if you're looking for a historical reference point, he's a contemporary of Sir Isaac Newton. He comes right in the next generation after René Descartes. Oliver Cromwell takes power in England in Leibniz's youth, even though Leibniz is in Germany at the time. So just historical frame of reference. Newton and Leibniz both discover calculus at the same time and publish it independently. So this is what most uh, historians of mathematics seem to believe, is that Leibniz actually publishes first his system, and then Newton publishes later, but perhaps Newton came up with it um, sort of privately before Leibniz published it. So it seems like they were working independently. It's kind of amazing that at the same time, they seem to have invented something that's now central to the sciences, calculus. So back to monads, though. What most important to Leibniz's theory of monads is the discovery, while Leibniz is a young man by one Robert Hooke, a pioneer in the use of microscopes, that there's life everywhere. There are these little things, Hooke calls them cells, that swim around on us, in plants, on surfaces, in cork, everywhere. So Leibniz is writing at this really exciting time. The old philosophy kept alive by the schoolmen or the scholastic teachers in Catholic seminaries and other universities is being challenged in new and important ways by the new science, by physics and chemistry and other natural sciences, which are sort of at their birth, the modern new way of doing science, natural philosophy or natural science, is, is born in the era, sort of right before Leibniz. And Leibniz is brought up in this milieu where the new sciences are the new thing. Everyone has to contend with the discovery that the world is not as we thought it was. Leibniz's philosophical thought comes out of a desire to take the old ways of thinking about the world 
and the new way of thinking about the world and marry them together. And the new way of thinking about the world is coming out of mathematical and experimental natural sciences that are rising to prominence during Leibniz's life. So if you think about the world in the old way, let's call it the scholastic view. Then roughly, very roughly, very, very roughly, you might think that the world can be explained by appeal to a quote-unquote natural order, according to which certain elements naturally want to be in certain places. Grave things want to go down, light things want to go up. There are two tendencies we might describe as gravity and levity that dictate where the basic elemental stuff like water, fire, air, and earth tend to go. Fire and air tend to go up, water and earth tend to go down, but all to different degrees. More complex things have more complex tendencies, but each of them we can sort of think of kind of like a little mind that quote-unquote wants. So this is all an analogy, but everything sort of wants to be in a certain place. Water wants to be down, and air wants to go up, and fire, you can see in a more sort of violent way, wants to go up. It wants to raise towards the sky. And you can theorize about the natural world as having these little minds that want to go places. Even though in the back of your head, if you're a scholastic, you know that this is all an analogy. It's just thinking about the world as being populated with agents, things that act um, to get where they naturally want to go. So that's a world that Leibniz is educated in in his youth. He goes to a, a university that teaches him the scholastic way of thinking about the world. But if you think about the world in the new way, so that, that's the way that in mean, previous generation Galileo, Hobbes, and then um, Descartes, and then Newton himself, they're thinking about the world in this sort of mechanistic way. Mechanism. There's just a bunch of stuff, and that stuff gets pushed around by other stuff, and that explains everything you need to know. So think about the way a clock works. It's got this spring that you wind up, and then that spring just naturally unwinds itself, putting some pressure on the gears, and then what happens is that the gears put pressure on each other, and it, everything just sort of happens. It's clockwork. Each, each piece gets pressure. It just passes that pressure on to the next piece in the design and eventually the hands move in a particular way. Everything just sort of does what it does. There's nothing mind-like that's, that's trying to do something or intending or wanting anything to happen in a particular way. Everything just sort of unfolds as it does and you can explain everything by the fact that the spring is made of a certain kind of metal that is gonna unwind at a certain rate just naturally and the gears are made of a certain metal that aren't going to warp and deform with a little bit of pressure from a spring or from the previous gear in the sequence. And all of those 
material facts about the way the clock is put together explains everything about how the clock moves. You don't really need to understand what the watchmaker wanted even. You just need to understand each piece and its dispositions and then you can explain the entire movement of the clock. And that explains everything we need to explain. So you can see the world as sort of like this machine where everything just sort of does what it does. Mechanism. Or you can think about it as sort of populated with these agents that are kind of mind-like in a way. And those are two radically different ways of seeing the world. So Leibniz is taking these three things, Hooke's experiments showing that there's life everywhere, the old way of looking at the world, according to which there are active agents all around us doing what they do to get where they naturally tend to go. And finally, the new way of looking at the world, according to which the world works like clockwork according to fixed and universal laws governing motion. There's no agents needed. Mechanism. So he's taking these three big ideas, smushing them together into a philosophical theory, a grand vision of how the world is put together in the most general terms possible. So the result is a little book called The Monadology. It's actually pretty short and it's easy to read. It's in the public domain, so go check it out. I'll link it in the show notes for this mini episode or, or monad that we're doing right now. So, What the heck is a monad? Quit jerking us around, dude. Okay, so this has all been important build-up to Leibniz's theory that the world is occupied through and through with living beings. One of Leibniz's greatest passages is found in the Monadology, in this, this small book I'm talking about. Each portion of matter can be conceived as a garden full of plants and as a pond full of fish. But each branch of a plant, each limb of an animal, each drop of its humors, is still another such garden or pond. And although the earth and air lying between the garden plants or the water lying between the fish of the pond are neither plant nor fish, they contain yet more of them, though of a subtleness imperceptible to us most often. Thus there's nothing fallow, sterile, or dead in the universe. No chaos and no confusion except an appearance, almost as if it looks like a pond at a distance where we might see the confused and so to speak teeming motion of the fish in the pond without discerning the fish themselves. So there's simply speaking life everywhere, all the way down, and perhaps all the way up. Living beings are things with something like a mind, something that takes in inputs through perception and outputs activities like motion. At rock bottom, a monad is just this, something that perceives and acts. But it's much grander than that, see, because there are monads everywhere, and monads see everything around them. They're like little stainless steel marbles that reflect the world around them, except instead of reflecting like a marble might, they use the perspective they have on the universe to decide what to do next. Everything ends up being explained by appeal to some monad or another. So as Leibniz was saying in the passage above, the world looks chaotic, but in fact it can be explained by appeal to the movements 
of monads, little mind-like substances. So your body is moving as one unit because you yourself are a monad, and all of the monads that make up your body are controlled by you. So you moving your arm is the monad that is you, the super complex mind, telling a bunch of other monads, think the cells that make up your arm and arm muscles, to move around. And those monads are saying, The movement of water is explained by little monads moving around in there. The movement of your pet cat is explained by the fact that she is a monad and she controls all the monads that make her up. The movement of my hair as it falls off my head while I'm combing my hair is explained by the millions of tiny monads that occupy that hair and their collective perceptions and actions, actions which lead them to float down to the carpet. Leibniz writes in this perhaps socially problematic passage, quote, and every momentary state of simple substance is a natural consequence of its immediately preceding one, so that the present is pregnant with the future. So every monad is always perceiving, which leads to acting, which allows new perceptions, which leads to more action, which enables new perceptions, and then more actions, and then new perceptions, and then more action, and then further perceptions, and then new actions, and further perceptions. So knowing the current state of a monad, including its perceptions, would allow one to predict what its next action would be. The future is a direct result of the present. Everything is rational. Everything is explicable. Um, Everything makes sense, even though it might not look like it. So this all builds up to the supreme monad, God. Leibniz writes, the supreme substance is unique and universal because nothing outside it is independent of it, end quote. So there's this universal mind behind all the movement of the universe that dictates how things will go, what moves where and who is in what position, so as to have which perspective on the universe. The monads all fall in line with the will of the universal monad, or of God. So the universe is in some sense just a bunch of points of view that God could take on the rest of the universe. So here's what Leibniz says. Just as the same town, when seen from different sides, will seem quite different, and though it were multiplied perspectively, the same thing happens here. Because of the infinite multitude of simple substances, it's as though there were that many different universes. But they are all perspectives on the same one, differing according to the different points of views of the monads. So when he says the infinite multitude of simple substances, he means... There are an infinite amount of monads. Each of them has its own unique perspective on the universe. And in some sense, that just is what the universe is. It's a bunch of monads perceiving each other from their own unique perspectives. So the universe is made up of perceptive little creatures, each with its own perception of the rest of the monads. They have an utterly unique perspective, but they're all perceiving the same universe. You are a monad, but so is the cell living in the saliva at the corner of your mouth. Those are very simple monads. You are a much more complicated monad. A turtle is a much less complicated monad than you, but much more complicated than the bacterium that's floating around in your mouth right now. So there's so much more to say about the monadology and Leibniz's idealistic philosophy in general. It's super interesting, super fun to engage with. It's really interesting how Leibniz is, you can see his influences of the new sciences and of Hooke discovering 
bacteria and single-celled organisms through the microscope and of the scholastic medieval worldview that Leibniz was educated in. And you can see how he's putting that together and trying to piece together a philosophy that makes sense of all those sources of authority and evidence. So the monad is an agent like the scholastics wanted. It's an actor. It's something that perceives and acts. It's, it's mind-like. It's kind of like your mind, but it's much simpler. At least the really simple monads, the really small, basic ones. But they all follow necessary laws like the scientists wanted because the scientists are discovering these laws of motion and Leibniz needs to be able to explain that. And so monads follow these necessary laws, but they're doing so in a sort of mind-like way. And they're living things like Hook discovered in his microscope. So there's life everywhere. Every part of the world is filled with life. There are living things through and through. And each of those living things, Leibniz believes, is a monad. Thanks especially to John Carriero, who was a mentor to me at UCLA as I was exploring the early modern tradition, including Leibniz. Though I'd hate to think that someone would hold John responsible for what they hear in this podcast. He is not responsible for it. All the responsibility is mine. This is just an introductory podcast to Leibniz's idea about monads. So if you're an expert on the topic, you're probably not going to be super satisfied with what I've said. And I'm okay with that. Thank you all for listening, and I promise to keep you up to date as we march towards having this full season of carefully produced episodes which center on a philosophical problem or a philosophical idea. You can find our website and our contact link in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin. Andrew Lavin.